We're going to dive right in. Last week, we were highlighting the fact that uh, James was going after those who plan presumptuously, presuming on God to allow things to be as you say and as you plan, and ultimately functioning as though we are the ones in ultimate control. And then he says, listen, in that you boast in your arrogance. And it it would seem that James was considering this presumptuous planning as arrogance and then boasting about it as being prideful about their arrogant thinking, which is just amazing to think about the way he's stacking that up. The sin of arrogant boasting. Kent Hughes made a strong point on it, making our plans without taking God into account with no thought about divine providence is really atheism in practice or practical atheism. Foolish self-dependence. The 17th verse of chapter 4, so whoever knows the right thing to do and then fails to do it for him, it is sin. The sin of omission, failing to do what is right. Now, again, a harder sin to handle because it's easier to identify the things that we know we shouldn't do. We shouldn't steal and slander and covet and adultery and so on. We understand that. But what about the things that we should do? I think one of the ways to answer this is to really to ask that question, what do you have? What has God given you? What are the gifts and talents, the resources, the, the passions and provisions that God has given you? And then what might the Lord say? I gave you, but you did nothing with it. I think the key here is to try to respond to what the Lord lays on your heart and trust him to make the difference with what you do. As a body of Christ, we all have our part to play. We can proclaim faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and, and, and being adopted as sons and daughters of his, but in reality, do we allow our faith to factor into our daily lives? Is this life I live, is it mine or is it his? This subject continues into chapter 5 today. I've entitled it Money Talks. If you are currently or have raised a teenager, you likely know that there are certain subjects that cause a teenager to give their parents the stiff arm. If you're familiar with football, uh, a stiff arm is, is a technique used by someone running with the ball to keep the defender from getting too close. And and teenagers do this to their parents at certain times. Like if a parent wants to talk to a teenager about what they're spending their money on, they'll get the stiff arm. The cleanliness of the room, there it goes. Staying out too late or up too late, oh. Homework and grades. Dating. As your pastor, I feel as though today's passage is one of those where you might be tempted to stiff arm it. We might fear that it will hit too close to home, cause some discomfort, or a concern that a big request or a big ask is coming. And you might want to just say, James and his epistle can just back off Give them the move. You'll see why. James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl 
for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. We're going to pray now, but I'm going to ask you just to pray on your own for a moment. May I just guide you through that? Would you just take a moment and pray? Just say, Lord, would you speak to my heart about this? Lord, help me drop my defenses. Lord, don't let me stiff arm you. Don't let me think of how this might apply to others instead of me. Have your way in my heart. Father, we give you this time. We recognize you in our praises and in our prayers and in the word that you are Lord of all, and yet, Lord, there are certain areas where we try to not let you be Lord of all. So, Lord, would you just do your work in our midst? Father, help us to hear your word to apply it, and to grow in our faith as a result. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll see from today's text the judgment of the rich and the, and the reasons for that judgment, and then we're going to examine additional texts for better ways to manage what we've been entrusted with and to see what, what money might be saying to us in the Scriptures. It's tough questions to wrestle with today. As always, it is of the utmost important for us to understand the context. We've noticed so far uh, the, the target audience has been, for the most part, believers. And today's text seems to show a shift, and, and, and there is one, but it's a unique one, and, and I'll explain. But first, notice that verse 1. Come now, you rich, and weep. Uh, rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, we, we saw that in last week's text, come now or listen now. And, and, and now the target is the, the rich. And notice what he tells them to do. He says, weep, howl, moan, shriek. This, this is extreme uh, grief being expressed here. It's interesting, in this short little epistle that is filled with imperatives, all these things we are to do, there's only one instruction or one imperative in these six verses. And it's to grieve. But I believe that might grant us a clue as, about the audience here. The rest of, it, of these verses is an explanation of why they should weep and howl. We're left to wonder why there's no further instruction for these rich people. I'll share a possible reason, but first, notice the intense instruction. Weep, wail, cry, howl. This, this is signified in, in deep 
just profound grief that just cannot be held in. The word used weep here is the same one used for, for Peter's, his grief after he had denied Christ three times. He wept bitterly. bitterly. This is deep and profound. Wail, howl, shriek. Why? Great misery is before you. Isn't that good news? Great misery is before you. And now he goes into the four things that signify that trouble has come. And the timing and the tense of this is interesting. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. So the first thing, your wealth is rotten. Your expensive clothes have been destroyed by moths. The clothes that used to set you apart in the marketplace, in, in the world around you, in the culture, it set you apart as wealthy and, and, and you were the elite and people admired you. Now they're moth-eaten and ruined and embarrassing to wear. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. So your wealth is rotten. Your precious metals are corrupted. And we struggle with that a little bit because it really means to rust down. And we understand why precious metals are precious. And, but this is, he's saying they, they've rusted down. They've corroded. Again, that same language. And, and we must pause and say, what is it that James could possibly be talking about here? Jewish writing often reminded their listeners that wealth is worthless in light of impending judgment. No amount of wealth can purchase eternity in heaven. You and I know the phrase that you cannot take it with you. There's no trailer hitches on, on hearses, right? I mean, we understand this. Yet we'll notice momentarily that Jesus teaches a wonderful principle to make us think more about that. There again in, in verse 3, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Isn't this just a delightful passage? Not only is he saying their gold and, and silver is rusting, it's corrupted, but the corrosion is witness against them. It's a clear sign of their corruption, of what's wrong with them. It's condemning proof. Think of a criminal trial when that smoking gun emerges, right? The DNA evidence or the video proof or the eyewitness testimony that's undeniable and everybody certainly agrees that, that the defendant is guilty. He's saying the rotten wealth, the, the precious metals that are corrupted are condemning proof against the rich of their corruption. And then he gets completely crazy and says that their corrosion will, notice the tense, eat their flesh like fire. Again, super pleasant. You and I can wrap our minds around the idea of things rotting or spoiling, right? Certainly there's been those occasions when you've reached into the fruit bowl for that beautiful looking orange only to have your fingers sink into the back of it and you turn it over and it's completely rotten. So you take a big bite. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
Or you take that drink of milk only to suddenly realize that milk has been in the fridge way too long and it immediately comes back out of your mouth. Remember Moses and the Israelites? Hungry while wandering in the desert and God provides quail and, and manna from heaven. Take enough for one day only except on the day before the Sabbath. Exodus 16, verse 19. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. James is saying, That which was of so much value to you that you'd gathered up it is now rotten and nasty and of little value. And those corrosive riches are going to eat your flesh like fire. Again, future tense. Notice the why. Very specific reasoning behind it all. End of verse 3. You have laid up treasures in the last days. You have hoarded like manna for the Israelites. Anybody starting to feel a little defensive? Just me. Okay. Number one, you've piled up treasures in the last days, hoarding more than you could ever need. Again, some curious things here. What's, what's being said? Last days, is it related to Jerusalem's upcoming troubles or the final days? I'd say probably yes, both. James' words were timely because several years later, the Jewish aristocracy was basically wiped out by their, uh, in their revolt against Rome. But the issue here is you have built up treasure for the love of it. It has become your passion. It has become your security. It has become your power. It has become your idol. It has become, dare I say it, your God. Remember the t parable that Jesus told of the, of the farmer who was successful? Good ground, big crops. But he had a problem. His barns were too small. And he said, I will tear them down and I will build bigger ones. And then I can relax and eat and drink and be merry. Luke 12, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, the issue here was the storing up of treasure in the wrong places. They certainly weren't rich toward God. We find the second reason in verse 4 of James 5. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've saved up all this wealth, and now the, it's, it's identified that it's, it's because of fraudulent behavior. Stolen from the poor, you have ill-gotten gain. You've taken from the day workers. In that, in that culture, in that time, those people that would have been harvesters, they, they literally worked for that day. They were paid for that day so they could eat that day. To withhold labor, uh, labor wages from them would have been to withhold food. Proverbs 28, verse 6 says, 
Better is a poor man who's wa who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Verse 16 of the same chapter says, A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Verse 22, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, Sabaoth, has heard the cries of those who have been cheated. Sure, you have successfully cheated people and you've gotten away with it, but God has not only noticed, but he will use his might against you. We find the third reason in verse 5 of James 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've stored up this treasure and you've done it by fraudulent behavior and you've now lived lavishly, a gluttonous lifestyle. Again, as we start to feel some tension in this, we might calm our anxieties by comparing ourselves to those who we would consider truly rich, those who have so much, those who own islands and, and many properties and are driven everywhere in limousines. Which reminds me of a story that was told some years back. Billy Graham was returning to Charlotte after speaking, uh, speaking engagement. And when his plane arrived there, there was a limousine there to transport him to his home. As he prepared to get into the limousine, he stopped and spoke to the driver. He said, you know, I'm 87 years old and I've never dri driven a limousine. Would you mind if I drove? The driver said, sure, I'll get in the back. Have at it. Billy got into the driver's seat and they headed down the highway. A short distance away sat a rookie state trooper operating his first speed trap. The long black limo went by him doing 70 in a 55. The trooper pulled out and easily caught up to the limo, and he got out of his patrol car and began the procedure. The young trooper walked up to the driver's door, and when the glass was rolled down, he was surprised to see who was driving. He immediately excused himself and went back to his car and called his supervisor. I know we're supposed to enforce the law, but I also know that important people are given certain courtesies. I need to know what I should do because I've stopped a very important person. Supervisor asked, is it the governor? Young trooper said, no, he's more important than that. Oh, wow, you pulled over the president? No. Young trooper said, he's even more important than that. After a moment, the supervisor finally asked, well, then who is it? Young trooper said, I think it's Jesus because he's got Billy Graham as a chauffeur. <laughs> you thought I was going somewhere serious with that, didn't you? <laughs> That's not true. I wanted to make sure you were listening. As long as we can point to someone who has more, we, we make ourselves feel better. I've said it many times, and I'll continue to say it, that comparisons are very dangerous to our faith. At the beginning of this, I asked you to pray that you wouldn't think about who else this passage should apply to. 
And matter of fact, if you want to compare yourself to other people, why don't you compare yourself to the majority of the world around us when in comparison to them, we are so rich. But understand, contextually here, James is attacking hedonistic behavior of the excessive, self-indulgent rich. Profound selfishness in seeking any and all pleasure from worldly things. Did you notice the last part of that fifth verse? You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. It's like he's saying, good thing you've fattened yourself because you will be the main course for destruction. And look at the reason he presents in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is saying, listen, you've stopped at nothing to get your wealth. You have an insatiable desire for more. You're never satisfied. Dr. Paul Cedar writes, the ultimate manifestation of the rich who trust their wealth more than God is that they are never satisfied with what they have. They must always have more. Okay, believe it or not, that was the easy part of the sermon. So what do we do with this? What do you and I do with this text, considering what was going on in that time? I mean, how do we apply it? Again, context helps. Most commentators are quick to say that James is addressing a new audience in these verses. And I believe that until this week. And they might be right, but I think he's actually just changing his target more than his audience. Why do I propose this? There are no further imperatives. Only weep and howl. There's no repent. There's no sell your goods. There's no go give back to those you've stolen from. Remember in chapter 2, the emphasis on partiality. In in 2 verse 6 it says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? While there may have been some unrighteous wealthy people who heard this or received this epistle, it seems to me that he's saying this to encourage those who were poor, who had been oppressed by the rich. He's still speaking to those believers. But he's saying it for them to hear. He's saying, listen, judgment is coming for the rich oppressors. The the wicked rich should only be grieving. That's what they should be doing right now, considering the circumstances. He's saying, listen, don't be envious of them. Those garments that you admire, they're moth-eaten, they're, they're rotten, they're, they're no good. That, that, that wealth that looks so good to you, no, it's not, it's not good. It's corrosive to those who possess it. He's saying their future is bleak. Yes, your current situation is bleak, people, but the future of those who oppress you, that's what's bleak. They are the ones who should mourn. Again, what do you and I do with this passage? Here's where it gets tough. James is speaking harshly against the wicked rich. And again, what were the principal behaviors of the wicked rich? They pile up treasures and dishonest gain, lavish lifestyle, and stopped at nothing to acquire and keep it. Certainly you and I need more biblical context to know what you and I are to do with this. 
reasonable question. Is the Bible suggesting that it is sinful to be wealthy? The answer is no. Abraham. Think of the wealth that King David had. And then to be outdone by his son Solomon. You get the impression that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Lydia and Philippi. Next week, I'll point out that, that James references Job. And, and remember, Job ended up getting more back from God. It's noteworthy that James communicates that the rotted riches and the unpaid wages witnessed against or cried out against the wicked rich, suggesting that wealth has a voice or that money talks. So let's try to hear the voice of money in Scripture. First of all, I think money in Scripture would say to us, I'm dangerous. Don't love me. I'm dangerous. Don't love me. The warning to the ungodly rich that they were invited to overhear shows us that the way we use our money is of serious importance. It is a demonstration of what we truly believe. 1 Timothy 6.10 for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you hear money speaking to you? I'm dangerous. Don't love me. Don't love me. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money talks. It's saying, I'm dangerous. Don't love me. Money's also saying, you are my temporary manager. I belong to God. In the fourth verse of, the, of our text today, uh, money has a voice and, it's, and, and it's, its voice speaks out truth. We referenced the parable of the talents last week about stewardship. What, what's going to be done with it? The, the idea of that, of that parable was that they were managing something that was not their own. And they would be held responsible with what they did with it. Money is talking to you and saying, you are my temporary manager. I belong to God. It's interesting. And money seems to always tell the truth. As believers, we must see everything as the Lord's. Remember the instruction of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember that phrase we shared a few minutes ago, you can't take it with you? It's almost like Jesus is saying you can. What does he say? He says, don't store up treasures here. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's suggesting this idea that we can sort of push our finances over the border of eternity. What a thought. We can lay up treasure in heaven that's incorruptible. Jesus is saying, you foolish people, don't put it all here. It's not about this life. It's about the next one. Lay up treasures in heaven that cannot be corrupted and will not spoil on you. Why? Because where your treasure is, that defines where your heart is also. Money talks and it also says, I have a purpose These people that James was speaking about believed that they knew the purpose for their, for their money and it was that they would have it for their last days. But God had something different in mind. The tense of what James communicated was that the last days were upon them. But the purpose of what God had given them was that he'd be glorified in it. Money is saying, I have a purpose. We've still got to land this, don't we? Let me ask you some questions. What does your desire for and pursuit of money say about you and about your faith? Let's let that question resonate for a minute. What does your desire for and pursuit of money say about you and about your faith? Secondly, does your use of money reflect a love of Christ or a love of the world? What you do with it, what does it reflect? What truth does it tell about your heart? And then maybe a good question to ask, what are some practical ways you can be storing up treasure in heaven? You can be rich towards God. A preacher noticed a family standing in front of him at a New Orleans convenience store that they didn't have enough money to pay for their few items. He tapped the man on the shoulder and said, you don't need to turn around, but please accept this money. The man took the money without ever seeing the preacher. Nine years later, the pastor was invited to speak at a church in New Orleans. After the service, a man walked up to the preacher and shared his story about how he had come to faith in Christ. He said, several years ago, My wife and I and our child were destitute. We'd lost everything, had no jobs, no money. We're living in our car. We had lost all hope and had agreed to a suicide pact, including our child. However, we decided 
that we first wanted to give our son some food, so we drove to a convenience store to buy him some food and milk. While we were standing in line at the store, we realized we didn't have quite enough money to pay for these items. But a man behind us asked us to please take the money from his hand and not look at him, and the man simply said, Jesus loves you. We left the store and drove to our designated suicide site. We wept for hours. We couldn't go through with it, so we drove away. And as we drove, we noticed a church with a sign out front which simply said, Jesus loves you. We went to that church the very next Sunday, and both my wife and I were saved that day. Then he told the pastor, when you began speaking this morning, I immediately knew that you were the man who gave us the money. How did he know? The pastor was, was from South Africa and had a very distinct accent. He continued, your act of kindness was much more than a simple good deed. Three people are alive today because of it. Isn't that cool? How, how do you and I apply this? I mean, maybe honoring God with our finances means that that we're just open and receptive to what God has in mind. It means that we're, we're disciplined and, and giving regularly and sacrificially to the church and being a part of things that are much bigger. Do you know that the students we sent to camp last week, of them, seven students came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that if you give regularly to the church, you had a part in that. You're part of something so much bigger. Be responsive, be ready. Consider maybe what you don't need anymore and that you, so that you can give more. As you assess your life, what do you really need? Maybe God might be just challenging you to raise your, raise your tithe 1% this year. Or maybe do more than just pray for those global workers, but say, how can I bless them in other ways? What generous, stealthy gift might I give to a coworker that might change their life? It comes down to the question, is what is in our accounts, is it ours or is it his? Folks, we are just stewards of that which God has given us. Layman Strauss says this, no man can determine whether he is rich or poor by merely looking at his balance in the account. He is not rich or poor according to what he has, but according to what he is. Folks, we have so much if we have Jesus Christ. We have a promise of an eternal inheritance in heaven. I hope that lifts your spirit just to know that through faith in Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb, you have it all. You are so blessed. May the truth of that lead you to want to live in such a way that you would be a blessing to others as well. That you would just see it all as on loan to you. You're simply a manager of what God has asked you to take care of. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this is your word, this is your time. 
Lord, I trust that your spirit will just work and do his work in each of our hearts and lives. Father, this is a tough subject for us and in many ways an uncomfortable one and yet such a significant one in your, in your word. Father, may the real change begin in our hearts that our hearts are so filled and overwhelmed by the love of Jesus that everything we do, including how we use our finances, is affected by it. And that even the way we live and the way we talk and the way we spend or don't spend it all reflects hearts that are solely given to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we want to honor you and give you the praise, and we want to do it in the name of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.